Uh, please turn with me, if you would, to the book of Zechariah. Uh, Zechariah is right near the end of the Old Testament, so if you start at the Gospel of Matthew and you go back a couple of pages through Malachi, you'll get there. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking at Zechariah chapter 8, which you can find on page 796, if you're using the pew Bible. I guess I should say the chair Bible. <laughs> This is God's word. The word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God, in faithfulness and in righteousness. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for your word, that you have preserved it and brought it to us this morning. We pray that as we consider it, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear, that our hearts would not be cold or stubborn, but that we would know the great love of our Savior, that we would rest evermore in Him, and that by Your Spirit, You would change us to be more like Him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we're looking at this morning is part of Zechariah's response to a question from the city of Bethel. Beginning of Zechariah 7, a delegation from Bethel travels to Jerusalem to ask a question about fasting. During the time of the exile, God's people observed four fasts. There was one in the fourth month, one in the fifth, one in the seventh, and one in the tenth. These fasts remembered significant events from around the fall of Jerusalem. The fourth month remembered the days the walls of Jerusalem were breached. The seventh month, the murder of the governor, and the tenth, the day that the city was surrounded. The fast of the fifth month, the one the delegation asks about specifically, was the most important because it remembered the day that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587. Now the people had kept these fasts for 70 years and what prompted the question now was the temple rebuilding effort. The first wave of returners from the exile quickly started work on a new temple and when that effort was stymied by local pressure, the Lord sent the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And their ministry inspired the people to get back to work. And by the time you get to Zechariah 8, they're well on their way. The delegation arrives in December of 518. The new temple will be dedicated three years later in 515. So their main question is, should we continue to fast? Now that this new temple is being built, is the time for mourning the old one over? It's a good question, especially coming from Bethel. Now, historically, Bethel was the site of a rival idolatrous temple. And this question meant that they mourned both the destruction of the true temple and that they wanted to be part of the right worship of the Lord. 
Zechariah starts his answer in chapter 7 with a blistering critique. The people, not just those from Bethel, but everyone, were growing more concerned with things like buildings and stones and fasting than they were with loving God and loving their neighbors. They cared more about secondary and tertiary issues than the primary thing God wants, our hearts. It's the same fundamental problem that led to the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem all those years ago. The people were keeping the outward forms, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Zechariah warns, it's starting to happen again. That response in chapter 7 must have been so disheartening. I mean, it needed to be said. People can't depend on buildings. We have to love God and not bricks. But you can imagine it taking all of the wind out of their sails. They had just spent the last few years putting their blood, their sweat, and their tears into this temple project. To hear that now they had the wrong focus, it must have been devastating. That correction was not all God wanted to say to them. They also need to be assured of his great love for them. And that's what we see here in Zechariah chapter 8. Now, this chapter has nine declarations from God. Nine, thus says the Lord. This morning we're going to look at the first five, and then we'll get to the next four next week. Here, Zechariah says, God is jealous for them. He is with them. They are going to see times of peace and blessing. It's going to be like when Sarah heard about Isaac. And he's going to bring the captives home. It's a sustained, passionate declaration of God's continuing and faithful love for his people. And that's a love that hasn't changed. Now, these declarations are all put in terms of the time and place they were given. But God's character and his love for his people, for us, it's the same. In fact, in Jesus, you know that love better than any of them did. God, your God, loves you. He declares that he loves you. He loves you so much that he sent his son to die, that you might have life. Now we get the the first of these five, thus says the Lord's in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Now this is a picture of ardent emotion and feeling. This is kicking down doors, breaking down walls kind of love. God is going to get his people and destroy anything or anyone who gets in his way. Now, his jealousy is not the same as envy or or one person holding on to another too closely. We often use jealousy almost as an entirely negative term. You don't want to be with a jealous person, someone suspicious who checks your phone when you're not looking. God's jealousy isn't suspicion. It's his desire for our loyalty and affection. As our maker and redeemer, he cannot abide anything getting between us. That's how jealousy is used in the second commandment, Exodus 20, verse 5. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above and is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Exodus 34, 14 says God's name is jealous. Same kind of context. For you shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. You see the same thing in Deuteronomy 4 and 5 and 6 and 32. All those places are talking about not worshiping other gods. A false God getting between the Lord and his people. Now here the, the picture is not so much of the people going astray as of God 
going to get them back. That's how he's jealous for Zion with great jealousy and great wrath. Somebody, somebody hurt them. Someone hurt the one that he loves. Somebody dared raise their hands against them and tried to take them away from him. And the Lord's going to stop at nothing to bring them back home safe and sound. He's like a mother bear separated from her cubs, ready to, to charge and destroy anything or anyone that gets in her way. That's how the Lord of hosts feels about us. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I am jealous for her with great wrath. He loves us ferociously. The place you see that most clearly is the cross. Our sin had set up a wall that kept God from us. It separated him from the people that he loved. So he utterly destroyed it to rescue us and bring us home. This first, thus says the Lord, has to do with God's ardent feeling for his people. He loves us so much that he will annihilate anything that gets between us, even our sin. Anything that separates us from him provokes his wrath. Now, the second, thus says the Lord, has to do with God living with us, with his people. This is verse 3. Thus says the Lord, <clears throat> I have returned to Zion. And I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, verse 2, God goes and he gets his people back, destroying anything that stands in his way. Here in verse 3, he promises to stay with them and to live with them. It's an especially poignant promise after the exile. A hundred years before Zechariah, the prophet Ezekiel described seeing the glory of the Lord leave the temple. That was Ezekiel 10. God left his city after the people had abandoned him. And that's what he said at the end of Zechariah 7. As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord of hosts. That's 7.14. But now, the Lord says, I'm coming back. I left at the time of the exile because you left me, but now I have returned. It's a central message of the night visions from the first half of this book. The visions start with the Lord scouting the outskirts of Jerusalem, and then they move closer and closer to the center of the temple, showing him coming back to dwell with his people once again. And when he's there, his presence changes things. Jerusalem is called the faithful city, the temple mount, the holy mountain. That's not because the people were much different, chapter 7 proves that, but the Lord promises that his presence, him being there, is going to change them. His holiness is going to work outward and transform them to be more and more like him. Instead of them profaning his sanctuary, God being there will work outward and make them holy. And again, this is exactly what Jesus does for us. John 1.14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We're not naturally holy. We sin and rebel, just like that generation that went into exile and the generation who came back and rebuilt the temple. But Jesus came to live with us so that he could die the death our sins demanded. And, and then he dwells with us. He lives with us by his Spirit and changes us from the inside out. Being one of Jesus' people means that, that right now, today, he lives in you. You have 
the very presence of God with you in the person of the Holy Spirit. You are the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts, the true temple, the holy temple. And his presence in you is slowly transforming you to make you more and more like him. It's like waves smoothing the rough edges of a stone in the ocean. Over time, he wears away everything that was wrong or evil or shameful in us, and he puts in its place new hearts that are holy and faithful and true, like he is. The second thing God says is he will dwell with us and change us, and that is happening in Jesus through his Spirit. The third, thus says the Lord, is in verses 4 and 5. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. That promise is in sharp contrast to what Zechariah said in chapter 7. 7.7 7, 7 talks about the days when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with their cities around her in the south, and the lowland were inhabited. But then in verse 14 he says, And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. Some of the older folks in the community had memories of when the land was populous and prosperous, but now Jerusalem was mostly empty, and the lands around them were barren and desolate. The population of returners was nowhere near the amount of people who had been there before. And, and think about who it would have been. The few people who had remained, some who migrated in from surrounding countries, and the returners. Jerusalem in 518 is not a place for the weak. They were the pioneers, the rebuilders, the people determined to clear away the rubble and restore what was lost. They gave up the relative security of a stable country to face constant danger from enemies, from famine, from each other. But this picture that God paints in verses 4 and 5 couldn't be uh, further from that. It's of a day when old men and old women could sit together in the streets of the city. People so aged and so infirm they had to walk with a king. Not soldiers, not tough, hard-scrabble farmers or builders. These are people whose working days are long behind them. And you notice the picture isn't exactly quiet. The old men and old women are sitting in the streets watching little girls and little boys play. Maybe their own grandkids. It's an image of prosperity and life, of safety and peace. And the most vulnerable are the very old and the very young. But here, they are filling the same streets that used to be empty and desolate. It's the blessing that Psalm 128 envisions. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. That's what it looks like for people to be blessed by the Lord. It means having everyone from the very young, full of life and potential, but needing care and instruction, to the very old, those with wisdom and experience who have borne the heat of the day and now need to rest, and everyone in between. God promised Jerusalem was going to be a city where the old and the young could share the same streets without fear. And he keeps that promise here in this church. Now, the, the church is to be the place where the, the vulnerable are brought home. It's not just for the strong or, or the self-sufficient, the able. The church is the place for those who need help, 
who know that they are dependent on the Lord like little children, where everyone from the very old to the very young are welcomed and loved and expected. What we ought to be striving for. Our churches should be places where where all are welcome, especially the vulnerable. We all, after all, need help and need to be rescued. Everyone from the old to the young can find rest and peace here in God's presence. Now that's the third of God's sayings. The fourth, thus says the Lord, is in verse 6. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Or in other words, this looks impossible to you, doesn't it? But does that make it impossible for me? And, and make no mistake, it did look impossible to them. They weren't lying. I mean, the people knew that the temple they were building was a shadow of the great temple that Solomon built. And, and they could look around. They could see the danger that still surrounded them. They knew their own hearts. The rebuke of chapter 7 is still ringing in their ears. People knew that they were tempted to leave the God who loved them, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Many of you know what it's like to be faced with what seems like a, a hopeless situation where you can't even imagine how God could make it any different and keep his promises. Maybe you ask with a job or a wayward child or some difficult relationship. You start to give up hope that anything is ever going to change, but but that is why the word God uses here is so important for us. He, he talks about it being marvelous in their sight. It's kind of a strange turn of phrase, but, but God chose that word because it connects back to something else he did that was marvelous in their eyes. Now, all the way back in Genesis 17, God promised Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a son. Not just that Abraham would have a son. He already had a son in Ishmael, but that Abraham and Sarah together would have a son. Sarah, who was 90 years old at that point, well past the time of bearing children, would conceive, and together they would welcome a baby boy. Now when Sarah hears that news in Genesis 18, she laughs, because it's impossible. But this is how the Lord replies to her. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. You know, Genesis uses the same exact word that Zechariah uses here. And it shows up again. Jeremiah 32, 27. God tells the prophet Jeremiah, the Babylonians are going to destroy the city of Jerusalem. There's nothing they could do at that point to prevent it. It was going to happen. And then the Lord tells him, I want you to go and buy a field just outside the city and secure the deed. Oh, that seems like a really foolish waste of money, especially when they're about to be exiled. But God tells Jeremiah, go buy that field, secure the deed, because one day I'm going to bring them back. Yes, they're going to go into exile, which they did, but then one day they're going to come back home. And he uses the same word. Is this marvelous? Does this look impossible? So yes, it looked impossible in Zechariah's time for Jerusalem to be at peace. And it looked impossible for God to dwell there again with his people. But God had done the impossible before, and he was going to do it again. Sarah had a son. They were all the descendants of Isaac, whose name means he laughs. And they were living proof of Jeremiah's hope, the first people who'd returned home after the exile. They were living the promise that Jeremiah thought couldn't happen. And 
Brothers and sisters, so are we. We think about the days that we are living in. You are living in the days since the Son of God became man and dwelt with us. We live in a world where God has taken on his creation and become one of us. And you are living in the time after death has been defeated. You are living in the days uh, when someone died, was put into the ground, stayed there for three days, and then came back to life. This is a post-resurrection world. Jesus died and rose again. And you are living in the days of the promised Holy Spirit. This, these are the days the prophets longed for, when the Spirit would be poured out on all people. That has happened. It started at Pentecost, and it has continued right now. You have the indwelling presence of the third person of the Trinity. You have God living in you, changing you, making you more and more holy. I mean, even the fact of his being here is an impossibility. Most of us aren't physical descendants of Abraham. My ancestors come mostly from Great Britain and Western Europe, not the Middle East. And here we are worshiping the Lord in New Jersey, halfway across the globe from Jerusalem. But you are part of the great ingathering of the nations. Men, women, and children from every nation and every background adopted and brought into the family of God. And there's a quote in Through the Looking Glass that says, Why sometimes I believe as many as six impossible things before breakfast. We don't just have to believe impossible things. You are living proof that they happen. That doesn't mean that the specific thing that's on your heart will happen. The Lord is working out his plan, and his ways are often mysterious to us. God is God, and we are not. But there is nothing too difficult for the Lord of hosts. Our God brings the dead to life. He brought us to life. He does the impossible every day. He's done it for us. Well, the last, thus says the Lord, that we're going to look at this morning is verses 7 and 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Now, to Zechariah's original years, that was extremely practical, that salvation that God is talking about. God was going to save his people from the east and from the west by bringing them back home to Jerusalem. It's the opposite of the exile and the scattering from chapter 7. You should imagine the prophet with his arms just absolutely wide open here. Everybody, from here to there, from the east to the west, no matter where they've been scattered, the Lord is going to bring them home. And they will dwell here in the midst of Jerusalem. This is now the, the third category of city residents that God has mentioned in this passage. First is himself. Verse 3, he was going to live in the city. The second were the old men and the old women and the boys and girls of verse 5. The city is going to be at peace and full of people of every age, old and young, men and women, boys and girls. And then the third category are those who at that point were still outside. The people who'd been scattered to the wind, who were lost who are far from home. God promises, I'm going to go get them as well. I'm going to bring them home. Everyone from the east to the west, as far as you can go, they are all coming home. You sense that the missionary movement starts with God himself dwelling with his people, and then we see God's family from the littlest to the oldest, and now those who are still lost and still outside being brought home. I mean, this is why we're here. 
This is why you are here. This is why this church exists in Medford. We exist to worship God. He is our God, and we are his people. We're his people because Jesus took on our humanity and became one of us. He lived, died, and rose again so that we could dwell with the Lord. He is making us holy. We're to minister to God's whole family, from the very young to the very old, those who walked with the Lord for many years, to those just learning how to crawl. But we remain here. We're still here. You are still here, not yet in Jesus' presence, because there are still people who belong to him who are lost and outside. People who have been scattered, who are wandering in the east and in the west, who must be brought home. We have family members, people Jesus died for, who are still out there. So the gospel must go out. The message of Jesus must be shared. They must come home. Not everybody who belongs to the Lord in Medford is here yet. The Lord is bringing his people to himself. Now that last phrase of verse 8 reminds us why all this is possible. In faithfulness and in righteousness. First John 1 John 1.9 says, We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you have it so much better than the first people who heard Zechariah's message. All they could do is, is look forward. They had to hope for the day when God would dwell again with his people because it wasn't really their day. The restoration doesn't fix things, and the new temple that they were building, as important as it was in God's ultimate plan, it was important, but it couldn't make them holy, and it couldn't make them righteous before the Lord. The sacrifices that they were going to offer there, they're not going to ultimately work. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That's Hebrews 10.4. But, but we know of the sacrifice that did work, the sacrifice that upholds God's faithfulness and his righteousness and makes us faithful and righteous. This is what the blood of Jesus accomplished for us. Now, his death satisfies God's holy demand for justice against our sin. He can be righteous and just to forgive us because someone died in our stead and he can be faithful to all of his promises to dwell with us and to save us because he took the burden of our salvation on himself. God wanted to be with us, so he did what was necessary so we could live with him. And the death of Jesus shows that God is faithful to his promise and righteous in his justice. And that's why these thus says the Lord statements mean so much more to us than it did to them. The people from Jerusalem or, or the delegation from Bethel, you know what God has done. You know how he proved his love for you once and for all. He sent his son to die for you while you were still his enemies. And Jesus' death is, is how we understand God's jealousy. There was nothing that he would let get between us. He destroyed death so that he could live with us. Jesus is how God dwells with us, taking on our humanity so he could be with us, and then sending us his Holy Spirit so that every moment, every day, we would have his presence with us. Jesus gives us the peace that unites us as the family of God, everyone from the old to the very young. He did the impossible to rescue us and bring us back. He went through death and came out the other side alive and spoke life into our dead hearts and gave forgiveness to traitors. And to this day, he is still gathering his people home, those who've been scattered from the west into the east, so that on the day when we are finally all gathered, praise to the Son will rise from every language of the earth. Now, the people 
from Bethel and the people from Jerusalem, they needed to hear about God's love. They were convicted about making secondary things more important than loving the Lord. They needed assurance that God was still their God and they were still his people. And we need that too. But what's more, we have the proof. Jesus has come. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, how thankful we are to be living in these days. These days where you have kept your promises to us. Where you have not left us or treated us as our sins deserve, but you have called us as your very own. And you have done everything necessary to make us your own. You have defeated our death. You have conquered our sin. You have freed us from our slavery. You have resurrected our dead hearts and given us your very presence in the Holy Spirit to bring us to life and to unite us to Christ. You're even using us in your mercy to gather your people home. Lord, we pray that you would assure us and comfort us with your love, that we would know uh, for a certainty that you are our God and we are your people. Lord, where we are doubting, uh, we pray that you would make us sure of your promises. Uh, where our love has gone cold or forgetful, we pray that you would remind us and, and warm our hearts once again. Lord, we are so thankful the great love that you have shown us in Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.